Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Jake, and Chris is actually not able to be with us this week, but we have an awesome guest in studio for you instead. We have Nate Furterer here, and he is a what a professional enduro off-road motorcycle racer. Yeah, that's right. As well as mechanical engineer is doing some really cool stuff with that. But you've had a ton of really awesome adventures and experiences in the off-road motorcycle racing world, which I really know nothing about. So we thought it'd be awesome to have you on the show and kind of delve into what that is, how you got to be at that level, and what it's like traveling around the world for this sort of stuff. So welcome, welcome onto the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me in. Absolutely. So first of all, when you think of motorcycle racing, at least in the off-road world, I usually think of like motocross or sometimes it's called supercross. And then you have enduro, which is like a totally different discipline. Yeah, it's uh, enduro is not as well known from uh, the outsider because it's hard to televise. You know, we're, we're riding for two, three hours at a time in the middle of the woods. Like it, you, you can't get a TV crew out there, but um, it's super popular within the people who actually do ride dirt bikes. Okay, so motocross is what you think of as the guys like going over the jumps, racing in a, a smaller closed course, right? And then you were telling me supercross is basically just like a variation of that? Yeah, that's right. Motocross is outdoors, you're in the hills, man-made jumps, mile-long track or so. Okay. Um, supercross is just the branding for the stadium racing. So gotcha. That's the one you'd go to whatever stadium you're at in your city and they do it in there. That's right. So they, they fill up the football stadiums, baseball stadiums, and then the literally the Shrine Circus Company <laughs> owns Supercross. Wait, really? Yeah, Feld Entertainment. So I didn't know Shrine Circus <laughs> was still a thing. Or maybe they're think, only doing Supercross yeah, now. Yeah, they, they had to diversify. <laughs> Are they the ones that own Monster Jam too? That's right. Do they really? Yes. I didn't even know that. I just thought yeah. they'd go hand in hand. I think um, it was a bit of a strategy thing because you had to bring dirt into the stadium. So oh. then they're like, let's just line up Monster Jam and Supercross the following weekend and just rearrange the dirt. After the circus? Yep. No. <laughs> I mean, it is a bit of a Elephants need dirt too, probably. <laughs> probably. That's really funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, so that's Supercross, which falls under motocross as a discipline. Yep. And you've, you said you've done some of that. Yeah, I've, I've raced around. Um, I grew up in Minnesota, and I'd hit all the Minnesota tracks and do some races here and there, but it was never my main focus. It's just a really good um, cross-training for what I actually do. Okay, so that brings up a good question. We should rewind and figure out, how did you, Nate, get into racing bikes in the first place? Where did you start out? Okay, um, I was born into it, I guess. Uh, my dad rode and raced, and then um, I, I my, got my first bike when I was five, so what bike I, was it? It was a Yamaha PW50, which is like a super yep. common starter bike for five, six, seven. See, year I hopped right into the Honda 80. Mm, nice. Which is, yeah, obviously same type of bike. Yeah. And, and that was like the extent of my dirt biking career was the <laughs> Honda 80, more or less. <laughs> you nice. apparently have gone further than that. Yeah, I did. Um, I, I was uh, thankful that, you know, my parents were supportive and um, I had bikes as a kid because most kids would love to have a dirt bike but yeah. you know i it was just like gifted to me because my dad liked doing it and so he uh, kind of wanted to instill that into you yeah totally and he was into motorsports um probably even more so into snowmobiling than dirt biking oh yeah um being a minnesota person but oh, yeah uh, 
you have to do something to embrace the winter like this. Otherwise, you just go nuts. <laughs> yeah, you got to get outside. <laughs> um, but so you started I, out on the PW80, or 50, was it? Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And then you, when did you actually start to first compete? What was your first competition as a rider? So I, I thinking had a pr- way back. Pretty Quote, stereotypical, normal childhood. Okay. Uh, up until I started dirt biking. <laughs> dirt bike <laughs> racing. Um, you know, I did the football, baseball stuff. Okay. And then um, my, my parents didn't push me to compete until I asked them to. So I was 12 and I was like, I want to try dirt bike racing because it seemed like a fun thing to do. I tried it and uh, I was hooked instantly. We're so bef- what was the format of this race as a 12-year-old? It was a uh, it was a hair scramble race, and you'll hear. What does that mean? So, hair scramble is a popular racing discipline within off road racing. Okay. So, I divide it as two main things within off road that are popular: enduro uh-huh. and hair scramble. Hair scramble is the closed course competition. Okay. So you you're riding on a five to ten mile loop on a usually a private property. Okay. There's a mass start. So you got everyone. Handlebar to handlebar right at the beginning. Yep. And there's which a, basically looks like mass chaos when I've seen this happen. <laughs> Especially as 12-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's you're sitting on the line. Your adrenaline's pumping. You, you don't know when the start's going to be. It's typically a flag or a shotgun. And then all of a sudden, the bike's far up, and, and you're off. And uh, That brings me a good... Sorry to interrupt, but I have a question. I've seen in off-road race, and this shows how much how little I know. They have, like, sometimes in some type of dirt racing, the bars, like, in front of the wheel that lower down. Mm. What is that? What am I thinking of? That's in motocross. It is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, motocross, so they'll do live engines. So, you just be sitting behind that backwards falling gate just with yeah. the... Clutch in, engine revved in gear, and you're <laughs> just, just revving the piss out of this thing, oh, yeah. waiting to yeah. drop the clutch. Exactly, and then uh, okay, so yeah. that's not part of off-road racing, though. Right, off-road the, the is uh, you're you're purely on natural terrain, so you're just out in the middle of a field or in the woods, and they're like, "Well, that looks like a good place to start, you guys." <laughs> so they line you up, spray, yep. spray paint the ground in this case, yep. um, and then uh, yeah, drop a flag, and off you go for the next hour two or three as a 12 year old it's an hour but you progress into the expert ranks and stuff you go two, you get, you get to the national level you're going three hours straight okay and so you progress then from the 12 year old doing hour-long endurance or off-world races and i from there i guess you just kept escalating up the ranks or what was there any individual point where you're like this was this was the step this is what launched my career yeah, you know, right away I wasn't good at it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been amazing if you were. But I, I like saw potential in myself. Like I thought I could be good. I was like, all right, I can see those people that are beating me in these races, and I'm like, I think I can beat them. Yeah. But it took me at least two years to get to that level. But it was like that carrot dangling in front of me that I wanted to work towards. And then once I did it, I was like, you know what, like this is something I could be good at. If I set my mind to it and work at it, I can be successful here. So the race you're doing is off-road endurance racing or enduro, which I'm realizing now that's why they call the bikes enduros. I mean, now you, you hear dual sport. Is dual sport and enduro, as far as the bike type, interchangeable? No, that's, no, a, okay. that's another segment. Um, so dual sport is another type of racing? 
No, there aren't really competitions with dual okay, sport. But it's, it's a different segment of bike. That's right. Okay. And dual sport, is, is it as simple as on and off road? That's the dual sportingness? Yeah. Yeah, the, <laughs> the bikes are... You're like, uh, yeah, you made it sound really dumb, but yes, <laughs> that is exactly what it is. Yeah, the bikes are designed for your adventurous that just wants to go on long distance rides, which might include some some tarmac, some off road, some single track. And is they, that what our friend Brandon rides? Are a lot of dual sports stuff, or is he also strictly dirt bike? Because I'm trying to remember, like when he, if you missed this episode, you have to go back to his crazy adventure down to Mexico where he almost got killed at least twice, <laughs> where he was riding some bike across country. I don't remember what that was, but. Does, yeah. that, does that fall into that category? <laughs> yeah, if you're riding a XR600 with a cartel in Mexico, I'd say that's more dual sport. That's dual sport. Okay, <laughs> good. We clarified that. But I did meet Brandon through Enduro. Okay. So he kind of transitioned more into the... After the cartel encounter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think so. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about this racing format and it seems kind of analogous to our favorite type of motorsport here on the show which is rally racing right so endurance motorcycle racing what what is the format are you running this hair scramble start like you're talking about so for for the enduro side it's a stage race so very similar to a rally where you have these set stages from point a to point b um a pause after point b you know camera comes up in your face to <laughs> sebastian Loeb, be like oh, yeah. how'd, how'd it go you yeah. know like same deal in off-road except you're uh, filling your bike with gas grabbing a bike to eat and then you're gonna ride a liaison to the next stage okay and you'll do typically six stages throughout the day and um you're, you're racing against the clock through those stages from point a to point b right and, and the liaison is just to get to the next time stage mm-hmm. and so these liaisons they're routes that are basically on public open roads right at least that's how it is in rally racing yeah yeah um not so common in u.s but in europe definitely you have to have a plate on your bike and you're riding on public roads okay so i do want to get into you have ridden at the level where you competed internationally for U.S. team. But before we get to that, let's take a quick moment to talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all that to be sent right there to your doorstep every single month. It's the curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Do you have any subscription boxes that uh, that you subscribe to there, Nate? No, my life is pretty much just dirt bikes. Um, <laughs> There's no dirt bike subscription service? <laughs> no, but maybe that's a good business idea. Uh, there you go. I like that. <laughs> well, maybe you have to check out Petrobox as well. You can find them at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. So, Nate, I've come to find that you're kind of a humble guy. And so I will do the bragging for you. You you are a big deal. Like You are at the professional level of this sport so much so that you've commuted competed overseas internationally on the highest level me not knowing the sport it's the super bowl of the sport mm-hmm. for the u.s team so how do you how do you get to that level how do you qualify for these types of events 
Well, before before you even qualify, I mean, you just have to be at a very high level, a skill skill wise. Are you invited to qualify? Or um, no, you're not invited to qualify. Anyone can go do it, but let let's be real. Anyone who's going to try to qualify knows they have a chance, right? So you have to know that you're at least one of the best regional riders in your area, and you get through through years and years of competing, and you you know where you rank generally. You have qualified, and what is this event called overseas where it is the international level event? Yeah, it's called the International Six Days of Enduro, ISDE for uh, abbreviation. Sure. Okay. And uh, this race has been going on for over 100 years, so it's super historic. Um, they started it out as an endurance event, both for a rider, but also to test um, the, the reliability of the machines. It started out as an race for country against country to see who had the best bike so if if you lived in czech republic previous to it being czech republic (laughs) and uh you had to ride your own motorcycle bike okay that's that's right and then um what the hell kind of czech motorcycles are there well this is like early 1900s (laughs) we're talking so so there was some guy in his garage who made a bike and he's gonna race it yeah so so u.s competitors what were they riding at the time they weren't oh okay yeah it just wasn't a thing yeah guys weren't bringing their harleys over there they uh changed the rules in the 40s i want to say okay and then americans started competing in the 40s um if you've heard the name steve mcqueen he was one of the first u.s racers a little bit different back in his day they were uh (laughs) smoking cigarettes like oh hell yeah i have to you know we should go back to that (laughs) shirtless smoking cigarettes yeah i like that yeah there's a lot of history here you know just look it up on Wikipedia. So I did pages. just look it up. The ISTE, formerly known as the International Six Days Trial, is the oldest off-road motorcycle event on the FIM calendar. And FIM is the Federation Internationale Motorcycle. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, yeah, that's exactly right with my accent. Yeah, they're the uh, international governing body that puts on this race. Um, and generally, you know, it's like any any governing body there's there's politics involved but this is the highest profile race of the year within offered racing so do you know uh, how many different countries compete in this event yeah typically uh 30 to 35 wow okay and how many competitors from each country like do you go as a team then yeah we go as a team and the number per country depends on the size of your country and the location um, where your home country is from in location to where the race right, is. proximity to the race. Interesting. Exactly. Um, it was in Italy last year, so there were a lot of Italian racers, uh, probably right. 100, 150 of the 600 racers were Italian last year. Wow, that is a lot. That's a lot of competitors. Yeah, it's a big race um, from a competitor standpoint, but also it's the, high, like, the highest level, so everyone there rips. You've been to numerous ISDEs. Mm-hmm. How uh, many? Four of them. Uh, first one in 2015 and wow. mo- most recent last year in 2020, 2021. I say a little bit confused because it was uh, planned in 2020, but you know. Oh, I suppose with COVID there wasn't there wasn't an event. Yeah, it got it got pushed here, but we we made it work. So the ISDE it changes location every year. You said Italy in 2015. Where was it? Slovakia, Eastern Europe. Slovakia. Europe. Okay. Yeah, that was a uh, that was wild. It was it was it was is, my what first. What is the terrain like in Slovakia? I know nothing about that country. Um, it's actually very similar 
to the Pacific Northwest. Um, Which is where you now reside. Yeah, I live in Oregon. And um, the coastal mountain range, so the range to the west of the Cascades, is identical. Really? Yeah, to this area that we raced in in Slovakia. Like, to the spitting image, where you look out over those rolling hills and uh, loose loose rocks and pine trees, and you're like, how is this half a world apart? Wow. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So that was a trip because I... I'd just gotten out of school, um, out of college, and this was something I wanted to do, to do this big international race, because I knew, like, I had the skill, but that was the first time, first opportunity I had the time to go to the race. Oh, I suppose. So there's a big time commitment. You have to go over a week early, you race for a week long, and you have to have the the funding or the the Just the logistics behind it all. Exactly. So I just, you know, I qualified kind of knew what I was getting myself into but not really until you actually get there and that was my first time to Europe so you just land and I was in a former eastern bloc country yeah, no so. kidding so you're seeing uh you know these old Russian high-rises you know your stereotypical <laughs> like complex apartment building of communist regime yeah and um I get to race my dirt bike in this country <laughs> <laughs> That Which, is amazing. Okay, so Slovakia was 2015. Yep, Spain. Spain uh, was what year? 2016. Okay, so you did these almost back-to-back. Um, those two, and then um, in 2017, 2018, I didn't go to those two. They changed the qualifying format. Okay. Um, from a one-race qualifying to a three-race series, so suddenly the the time and money commitment to qualify oh. became greater, which becomes difficult for me where it's not my full-time job. I do this on the nights and weekends. So I got to have to very meticulously plan out my schedule and my days off. It's, it's interesting, the distinction. So you're racing at the pro level, but it isn't your profession. And I kind of asked you about this previously off air, and you could do this as your profession if you chose to you are at that skill level yeah i i could make it i mean i i beat people who do this for a full-time job but i choose not to because i uh i'm looking at engineering as my career and this is just a, a hobby yeah there's the old adage that if you want to make yourself hate your passion do it for a living right and so it's probably better in the long run that you decided this is going to be your passion that it's just amazing that you are at this pro level and yet you have this whole other career which we will get to because it is very cool what you do on the mechanical engineering side as well um okay so portugal in 2015 spain 2016 and you said these are six days with these timed rally stages and liaisons in between how how many like how far across the country are you going you're, you're staying in the same region, okay. um, but you ride about 180 miles a day. So it's a lot of seat time for an enduro bike. Especially, I have to imagine, in the heat of competition on these time stages. Like, I, I haven't ridden a dirt bike in a long time. I've ridden street bikes, but it's hard riding. It's rough. You're bouncing around. You, your hands, your legs, your arms, everything's getting tired, chafed fatigued it's it's brutal it's a really is a physical test which is why you're in much better shape than i am here (laughs) (laughs) being such a like a demanding physical activity i have known a couple guys who had been into motocross not professionally but they had done it for a few years and you just 
they broke too many bones and got injured too many times to continue doing it. Have, have you had the same experience where it's been, you know, severe injuries over the course of years? Um, for myself, no, I'm a anomaly in that, that sense. Um, I, I've had no major injuries, so you haven't, you haven't broken a single bone in all these years of riding. Maybe like a, you know, a foot or a hand, not, but nothing needing like a cast or a surgery. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty rare because that definitely is the common case of the someone breaks their femur and their hip or their back, and they're like, yeah, I can't really walk right anymore, so I'm going to hang <laughs> hang up the boots. Because you're literally flying through the woods next to trees, over cliff faces. It's- yeah, there's a high risk and very little margin for error. Have there been f- fatalities in competition ever? It, every every week. Seriously? Yeah, if you were to look into it, it's it's bad. Like, I don't even know how this is legal. <laughs> Seriously. Wow. Yeah. What makes it worth the risk for you? Um, you can't think about that. Yeah. Yeah, you, you just have to love doing it and you can't think about the injuries and the the risk. It just the enjoyment, that adrenaline, that flow you get with the bike just has to be worth that risk to you. And if it is and you can put that aside in your mind, it doesn't matter. Being at such a high level competitively in this sport, do you find it different? Or I guess the question is, do you even like to go out and just ride trails for the fun no, of it? No, I don't. <laughs> like, <laughs> Why is that? I don't know. It's uh, Is it because it's totally different? There's no adrenaline? There's no, there's no push? There's no clock? Yeah, yeah. And it's... You, a lot of people just like to go trail riding with their buddies right. and like that's what sounds fun to me <laughs> and you're like there's no desire there no i the majority of the satisfaction to me is the perfection of the riding where i know how to ride like how it should be right so the fun in it for me is trying to be perfect interesting so you know it's like oh I just nailed that corner or I linked these bumps together and everything's just flowing perfectly. That's when I get satisfaction. If I'm just out tiddling around on the trails, like I'm not pushing the limits. I don't get that, um, finding that edge where I'm just riding the very limit and then actually stringing together corner to corner, jump to jump and getting in that flow state. I was just going to say, yeah, the flow state where you're you're in the zone so much. Mm. And so that's what it's about for you. Totally. Yeah. And uh, if I'm not pushing, I can't get in the flow state. So, yeah, I have to ride hard. That's amazing. So I keep going back because you've been in so many of these ISDE events. So you did Portugal, Spain. What was the third one? Actually, uh Portugal was the third one. You, oh, I'm that. sorry. Yeah. yeah, it was first um, uh, Slovakia, 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 Slovakia Spain, Spain, Portugal, and then Portugal. Yep. And then, I'm uh, so bad. Okay, these are all European countries. <laughs> I'm so bad with European geography. Where's <laughs> Portugal in relation to Spain? It's right next to it, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's on the like western coast. coast okay. Um, so it's like its neighbor, but totally different, surprisingly. Yeah, I was. So you said Slovakia is very similar to the Pacific Northwest of the U.S as far as terrain that you rode, Mm -hmm. what were Spain and Portugal like as far as what you're actually riding on? Those are uh, a lot drier places than, um, than Slovakia was like 
wet, wet and gloomy, which is part of the reason why it reminded me of the Northwest. But, right. Um, yeah, Spain is is hilly. There's a lot of clay. There's a lot of rocks. Um, sunshine just bakes that soil in it, and it becomes super hard. Huh. Um, you know, you think of these um, European countries for having wine, right? Like right. Portugal, Spain. Yeah, like, you need kind of that arid. Yeah, yeah, and that's what makes good grapes is like that harsh environment. But right. for dirt biking, that makes really harsh <laughs> <laughs> environment. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and this race typically is in the, the fall, so it's usually more of the wet season. Okay. And um, that introduces a big factor is like you have clay dirt, it's very hard, but then it it's a six-day long race, so right. you're probably going to get some rain. You get some rain on hard hard clay, and it becomes like ice. It's just slick. Yeah, super slick. So you have to have the skill to ride these different varying conditions and succeed and keep it together for six days in a row. So I'm thinking with, you know, like race cars, especially like on sports car track, you, you would change tires or your suspension setup based on the conditions. Is that something that a, you would want to do or is even allowed in a competition like this? Like, do you change tires out at all for condition or your dampener settings or anything like that? Yeah. Um, when, at this level, when you're pushing this hard um, for 180 miles in a day, you wear a, a set of tires in a day. Seriously. Which, uh, like, your average Enduro racer is probably going a full season. Oh, yeah. <laughs> set of tires. We're, we're going through them each day. And then at the end of the day, the racer has to change your own tires within a certain amount of time. So that's even a race in itself is changing out your tires. Yeah. If you don't get your work done within the allotted time, you're penalized. So there's incentive to get it done on time wow but also you had asked you know about changing tires well you kind of you know ha you have an idea on the forecast or how the train was maybe you didn't like how your tire was working yeah you have the opportunity to change tires for the next day so that brings a good question you're halfway across the world you have your bike and apparently a bunch of spares with you do you just ship everything over in a container ahead of time, or how does that work? That's exactly right, um, and that's kind of why we capped the U.S. team at 30 riders. Is like that's the most bikes we can fit in one container. Wow. How many tires do you bring on one of these six-day events then? A set for each day. Okay. Um, so six days in a row, six sets. Okay, but you do vary, like, what, compound, tread, et cetera? Yeah, and we actually, um, for the tires, we, we buy them over there just to save space oh, in, the, okay. in the container. So. At the race, there are vendors. Oh, interesting. You know, like for Formula One, right? They have yeah. Whoever's the main sponsor, Pirelli now, is that right? I believe so. so you know, they, they have their their yeah tire soft, tire. medium, hard for that weekend. Sure. We kind of have that same deal where it's like your soft, medium, hard, or different tread patterns. What about um, I mentioned suspension setup? Do you do you change your suspension setup throughout the race? I do, but I'm. A <laughs> But as we'll learn <laughs> later, that's like, that's your thing. Yeah, I'm a suspension engineer. So, you know, like that's the world I live in. Um, but some guys, they they don't think about it. They're right. just purely focused on the riding and they could care less. They're not turning any clickers. <laughs> but you're like, oh, I need a little more rebound or yeah, a little yeah, more I'm, preload. Which maybe is like limits me a little bit but i'm thinking about that constantly on how could i how could my bike work better how could my suspension be better what do i need to change to be, make it better you know you talked about being in flow state while riding and then also how you're obviously constantly thinking about the setup of your bike does that go into your riding style 
as well? Yeah, totally. Some people, um, maybe they're not scared of getting injured and they're, they don't care about, um, being conservative. They just pin it. Their, their bikes bouncing around everywhere. They're, they're riding probably over their limit, but they're willing to do that to try to ride faster. Right. Faster is an out. There's a saying, at least in dirt bike, I don't know. There's car racing is like smoother is faster. Yeah. It's in the shooting world actually is slow is smooth. Smooth is fast. And I've, I've taken that approach um, where I know that if you make less mistakes, you're better off going faster than just like pushing the limit, crashing a lot. It's, it's not worth the risk. That must be one of the reasons why you haven't had any serious injuries as well. It's maybe more conservative riding approach. Yeah, I think so. I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that for sure. So speaking of conservative riding, I one of the only one of two European countries I've been to in my life is Italy. And that is where you went in, was it 21? Yeah, yeah, just uh, last I August, guess August and last September, year. September. So what part of Italy did this event take place in? It was in northern Italy, uh, about an hour away from Milan, like wine country. So a uh, typical day. <laughs> that day. seems like a theme throughout <laughs> all these races, right? It's like wine country aside from Slovakia. <laughs> I don't know if there's wine out there. No, as, as Eastern so. Bloc, it's probably all vodka, right? That's <laughs> yes, vodka country. A little bit, uh, <laughs> yeah, different climate over there and uh, culture. So, uh, yeah, a lot of them I have been to have been in wine country. And uh, a typical stage will be riding up, um, the liaisons on these windy mountain roads, and you'll just pop out to a vineyard, and that's where the special stage is. It's Seriously? Like in the vineyard. So you're, you're racing through a vineyard? Yeah, like between the grape rows through... <laughs> <laughs> That is amazing. So it's, I mean, obviously these locations must be super picturesque as well. Absolutely. And that's like part of why I keep going back to this race is like, all right, you can get great racing in the U.S., but going to these foreign locations, racing against the best competition and best skilled racers in the world in these picturesque locations, like it can't be better than that. Wow. And so you you mentioned these liaison um, they're not stages, but they're liaison routes between these stages where they're on public roads and you're basically going from stage to stage. And I'm trying to remember in rally racing, I mean, it's basically if you can't make it under your own power to the next stage, you can't compete. Is that the same in this as well? That's right. There's a time schedule. So you have a certain amount of time to get to the next stage, but generally that time schedule is set. So you have a few minutes when you get to the next stage to grab a bite, bite of food, some water, refill your bike, and then you pop into that special so stage. So it is, it is that tight though. Like you finish stage and then they say ready. Okay. Get to the next place. And yeah. it's within minutes till they start again. Yeah. It's like about five minutes on average. Wow. Like, I say rest with quotations. Right. Because you're, you're just shoveling something in your face. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't fueling take, up. Don't take my gloves off. Like I just dirty gloves, grab a bite of food, shove it in my face. So one thing I remember from being in Italy and we, we drove around the country a little bit was there is something uniquely insane about Italian drivers. I remember going on these narrow two lane roads. You can't even call it a two-lane road as one road where barely two cars fit between but italian motorcyclists in particular they lane split down the center of the road but then you have another guy on a bike lane splitting as well coming head on and somehow they don't crash it, did you experience any of this <laughs> insanity while you're over there yeah insanity is right <laughs> i was shocked by it and then just continued to experience it every day 
I'd be, you know, on these liaisons where I, I can't just cruise. Like, I have a time schedule to get the next yeah, day. But, like, also, I'm on a public road, so I can't speed, really. I mean, there's risk to speeding. You could get caught and ticketed. Right, and then you're probably not going to make your next stage timed. And then I'm coming across these guys on these white in cars coming at me on these, right. you know, single-lane mountain roads, and I, they're not moving over for me. So I had a few near head-on collisions that I had to jump off the road into the ditch and I actually crashed. There was one time I fell into a cement barrier. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. It was like this drainage ditch, and I I didn't know how I was going to get my bike out because it was like four feet high on each side, and I was like a little bit of a panic, you know. Yeah. I was, I was, it's first thing. It's like, all right, am I, am I all right? I crashed on pavement, and I'm wearing moto gear, so like... You I suppose that's totally different. Yeah, you don't have leathers and, and sliding pads or anything like that. All right. I was okay, yeah, a little little scraped up, a little road rash. Is bike okay? Yeah, also scraped up. Now it's like, all right, I got to figure a way to get this thing out because two, four feet high on both sides. Oh, I'm not lifting it out. Bike weighs 250 pounds. Like, I'm, I'm no Olympic weightlifter or anything. <laughs> I'm an I'm enduro racer. Right, okay. So... I just decided to ride down this thing. Okay. <laughs> Is it running like parallel to the road? Yep. Yep. And uh, I just rode down it, eventually got to the end, and I got pretty lucky in that I was a, it was not a vertical wall at the end. It was just steep enough where I could wrap <laughs> out of Rip it. Rip it on out. Yep. And uh, yeah, hop back on the road and just keep going. And, um, you know, things like that happen when you're doing a week-long race, and you just kind of have to put it put it aside and realign your focus and go fast in the next stage. Wow. <laughs> I'm just amazed by that. I'm wondering if you could have just like hopped down there ahead of time and like avoided traffic and just <laughs> ripped the whole way. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm thankful to be alive <laughs> for some of those experiences. Cause like, had I not gone in the gears, like I would have hit these cars head on. You mentioned, you know, you don't want to speed cause you don't want to be pulled over. You want to avoid the, the, laws of the road in these liaisons do some guys like rip as fast as they can to get more mm. time before the next stage i've had to do that really yeah and it does happen um like for my um experiences on having to pin it down roads it's typically like i got lost in a liaison like went the wrong oh. missed, missed an arrow and went the wrong way off the route so then eventually i figured it out but because you're kind of making your own way it's, it's is it or is it like everyone leaves at the same time and you're single file um, going down the road? Yeah, you're like spaced apart, so okay. um, so you can get lost. Yeah, you're not exactly <laughs> following anyone. You're following uh, some paper arrows attached to some some <laughs> signs trees. that might still be there. <laughs> yeah, the rain makes them flop over or something, and um, and also you're on roads going going off roads onto dirt tracks and stuff. So I missed a corner. I just kept going down a road and then following cars. And then eventually I'm like, I think I'm off. Like, I haven't seen a bike in a while. Yeah. So um, turned around, eventually found the right way. And at this point, I, I probably wasted 15 minutes. So I knew oh. that I wasn't going to get to the stage in time. Every minute late you are to the stage is a minute tacked onto your special stage time. So, Right. Okay. So they start it, and it, whether you're there or not, the time starts. The clock starts. Exactly. So there's typically like an hour a day of special stage time so like every minute to that is pretty detrimental to your results so in this case we're like i got behind i just pinned it down these roads 
which is sketchy when you're on knobby tires on wet pavement and just like i suppose i didn't even think of that <laughs> yeah was this in italy or where was uh, this this time i'm describing is in uh portugal in 19 <laughs> so how much time did you did you miss off the start oh i made it you made it <laughs> yeah okay that's pretty there's a awesome. uh, in the four times I've done it, I've only gotten one time penalty. And this was uh, in Slovakia my first time. I, I didn't know what I was doing, getting myself into and how this whole format works. This format's actually a little bit different than what I do in America. So, How so? Um, we don't ride on the public roads in America. Okay. Um, generally, this... Well, that's no fun. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the stages are longer. Okay. Um, and they yeah don't have as long as liaisons in between so you don't have to do as much timekeeping and so um and there's there's a whole bunch of differences that i could get into but um basically longer stages not as many liaisons between mm -hmm. so how many races are there throughout the u.s is there is there official calendar of these sanctioned events like for the u.s internationally so like i'm just curious what did you have to do like to get to that 2021 oh, Italian sure. yeah. ISDE. Yeah, there are uh, thousands of races among the U.S. It's yeah, generally categorized as you have local, so like you have Minnesota races. Okay. And then you have regional, so like Midwest, Midwest sure. East Coast, Northwest, etc. And then national races, so they're like full U.S. series that have different stops along the country. Um, so generally you progress from those ranks, local, regional, national to international. So I became Minnesota state champion um, by the senior year of high school. Wow. Um, which is pretty young to, to be state champion. Like most guys are in their 20s or, yeah. or so. So I had success pretty young and then um, started moving moving down to regional and then national. And then, um, yeah, a few years later, I was doing international races. So it's, it's a natural progression from doing smaller races locally against people that live in your area to branching off to the best talent regionally and best talent nationally. And if you find success at each of those levels, you can move on to the international. So with the international, do you basically just choose to say, okay, I want to go compete there and I think I have a chance? Or do you have to basically get selected for the team? You have to want to go first. Okay, yeah. I'm like, all right, that seems like something I want to do and, and I want to represent my country. But then you have to qualify. So then th there are qualifying races that pit you and like racers who also want to be on the team because there's only like uh, like is that 30 spots so right you're competing for those 30 spots and you do well enough at the qualifiers you get the spot you get the invite and you say i'm going so with these different levels that you're competing at to get up to international there's also i have to imagine different like classes to the bikes because there's a lot of different types of off-road I'm, I'm sounding totally stupid here because I, I don't know what i'm talking about but like there's different displacement bikes that all race these events right yeah generally we can have we've got two strokes we got four strokes different displacements within the two different technologies you have 125 two strokes 250 300 two strokes you have 250 450 500 four strokes 350s and they're all competing together at my level yeah yeah it's it's just open it's a free-for-all yeah run what you brung whatever you want but um at the at the amateur level yeah you're divided up against like bikes but um for off-road racing it, it really comes down to the the rider is the ultimate decider on if that bike goes fast or not and you can get it done on anything 
So do you, do most guys stick to like one kind of class of bike? Like, are you, you know, oh, I'm, I'm only 400 CC or below is what I usually do. Like, is that, yeah, is that the thing? That's definitely typical. So, you know, dirt biking is great because anyone, any body type can do it. You can be tall, you can be short, you can be fat, you can be skinny. Right. But generally you kind of pick the bike size based on your body type. Right. A small guy is going to have less displacement, et cetera. Um, I really find enjoyment on riding different bikes. So every year I pick a completely, a new brand, a new displacement, switch from two stroke to four stroke, sometimes within the year. Like really? um, a couple of years ago, I had, I raced five different bike types throughout the year, which is very not normal, but, um, <laughs> Being from the technical side, I just really enjoy learning the different um, aspects of each bike and trying to work with those pros and cons. And like, that's an interesting, you know, you had mentioned like what I like about riding and and the flow and pushing the limit. So I also really enjoyed the mechanical side on like trying to make work with the bike because that's what's great about motorcycles is like it's man and bike. Right. It really is just you and the machine. And Mm -hmm. you talk about being integrated on it. That's about as close as you can get. So, okay, what what do you prefer riding? I mean, uh, do you have a preference seeing as how you switch back and forth that frequently? <laughs> do you do you live for the smell of two stroke or do you like the the uh, four stroke appeal? I generally say two stroke for fun. Okay. Um, you know, the sound, the smell, the the feeling it gives you like you just can't replicate that on a four stroke. But four stroke for performance. It's just a more a versatile machine you have more torque a broader power band it's easier to ride takes less energy which is funny because it never used to be that way traditionally it was like two stroke was the performance machine right yeah the power to weight of a two stroke is just really tough to beat and um, it wasn't until the early 2000s where performance four strokes started to get into this scene really what like what changes because you think about car engines especially like unless you're talking forced induction or fuel injection there there hasn't been that much advancement in four-stroke technology but you look at bikes and it's leaps and bounds yeah it uh it changed drastically from there there were always four-strokes but they were generally air-cooled they were heavy that they weren't performance four-strokes yamaha introduced the yz 400 then 426 liquid cooled four stroke and it got a displacement advantage um they didn't know what class to put it in so they're like well the the dyno says about the power this makes is equal to a 250 cc two stroke which was the popular two stroke sure of, of the early 2000s and previous so they're like let's let it compete in that class and um, actually, let's let's let them go up to 450. That seems like an appropriate number. So they're letting 450 cc four-stroke, four-stroke bikes go against these 250s. Yeah, and within a few years, they were just blowing them out of the water. Really ripping the starts. They were just easier easier to ride because of that torque characteristic. Just right, hook. you don't always have to be in the correct gear. Yeah, two strokes hard to ride. Like it takes a really a uh, long time to learn how to ride a two-stroke fast because the the power is so finicky and you make all your power when that motor is just spooled up and right. you can keep it in that in the power band yeah exactly but that's not really a thing with the four-stroke you don't have to finesse the clutch and and really time oh, your gears so much you can just leave it in third gear leave your hand off the clutch clutch lever and just roll on the throttle and you're just hooking up 
this this shows how much of a novice I am when it comes to this. I didn't realize. So you're at least on a two stroke. You're slipping the clutch to keep in the power band. Yeah, I would. Uh, we, we call it fanning because you're just constantly just moving really? that lever, especially on the 125 two stroke, the smaller, yeah, smaller size. It has 30, 34, 35 horsepower, and you need every bit of that <laughs> where you're just trying to keep that RPM within these. Thousand, two thousand. So throttle pinned, and you're basically modulating the RPM with your clutch. Yep, that's wild to me. Wild, mind you, you're going over the craziest terrain and diving into corners. Yeah, and it's a lot of that that cornering. Um, you you enter the corner, which generally is bermed up. The dirt gets pushed to the outside, right? And, and you want to lean your bike into that berm, but the berm is soft dirt. It's really power so robbing. You, Okay, interesting. Yeah, so, I'm thinking like, oh, you have a banked corner. That's great. You can just go right through. No, it's like the silt and like the topsoil oh, gets pushed out. Sure. But you want to ride against that because it makes cornering easier than riding the inside, which is usually your the base, the hard-packed soil. So you hit that berm, roll on the gas, and then you use that clutch to just get the power right. So what is that's, – that's, how do you keep track of that? It's, it's really difficult on keeping your power right, but then focusing on where you want to go and where you should have your body in the right position. Are you putting your, putting your feet on the pegs right? Are you lifting your legs up right? Are you standing up where you should be? It's a pretty complicated um, system between man and bike, and that's what, that's what makes dirt biking difficult, and, and people really want to learn how to do that. But um, it takes time and practice. For me, I was pretty lucky where I was mechanically inclined. So, like, I really understood the the motorcycle dynamics of it. Right. And then I was athletically gifted enough to do the the physical side of it. <laughs> and uh, I think that's why, like, I, I've found a lot of success in this sport is, like, it's the, for me, it's, like, the perfect melding of of physicality and motorsports. That's awesome. Let's take a quick minute here to talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. So have you ever wanted to polish or detail your vehicle, but didn't know where to start? I've always been concerned, like if you have pick up the DA, I'm just going to burn right through the damn paint and have no idea what I'm doing. Well, Oberk was researched, developed, and tested by car care experts to bridge the gap between enthusiasts and professional-grade products. And remove the guesswork from polishing and detailing your vehicle. These guys are passionate with a long history of developing products themselves, so they know firsthand what makes a good product. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your next order at obercarcare.com when you use the code OVERCREST. Again, check them out over at obercarcare.com and use that coupon code OVERCREST. All right, so Nate, we've talked about your career with professional motorcycling, you also have this entire other career with mechanical engineering and it dovetails perfectly. So tell people what you do. Yeah. Um, so my real job, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm a mechanical engineer, you know, did did the whole go to university, get a bachelor's degree. Right. Yeah. Usually you have to do that to become a mechanical engineer. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, my first job out of school, I worked at a company in Minneapolis, Graco specialty fluid handling equipment company. Um, from there, um, a majority of my professional experience is at a company called Hypertherm. It's a big in industrial cutting. I worked on the water jet division, so I designed high-pressure water jet pumps. So 
ultra high pressure water for various CNC cutting, anything and everything. Water jet stuff is just amazing to me that you can cut, you know, massive multi-inch thick plate steel with water. Like yeah. what, what PSI is that stuff shooting out at? Uh, typically 60,000. <laughs> yeah. So super high pressure, but it's actually pretty low flow rate. Um, you're yeah, I not, suppose it's, you're not flowing gallons and gallons of water. Yeah, no, it's like a, about a gallon a minute. Really? Um, and a lot of people don't know this about water jet cutting that it's not actually the water doing the cutting. It's that's just the vehicle okay. to, to bring along the abrasive. So typically use a crushed garnet, a semi-precious gemstone. And well, I didn't it, know this. Yeah, it's working under uh, the principle of uh, rapid erosion. So Really? So you're just eroding the material. Yeah, very fast. <laughs> That's <laughs> amazing. It's, I never it's, knew that. The water is moving. You know, you have 60,000 PSI. You focus it down to a typically 0.01 diameter nozzle, and then you introduce the abrasive, and it. it's moving Mach 3. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's just blasting this abrasive that's just cutting away. Is the away. abrasive added to the flow after the pressure? Because yeah. I'm trying to think, like, if you have all this abrasive in, how are you going to run it through a pump without destroying the pump, right? Yeah, it's added at the stream, and uh, the velocity of the jet draws a venturi to yep. bring in the abrasive. I love that. I've never heard it described as rapid erosion. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I didn't know too much about it before uh, I worked in that world, but, uh, yeah, it was great. I worked there for about five years, and then now... Um, I work in the motorsport world. I followed my passion of dirt bike racing, and now I design suspension for dirt bikes. Which is why, as we mentioned, you are so, um, I guess, focused on having your bike dialed in perfectly. Yeah, and I, I'm just always chasing perfection, but it's like this unachievable thing with suspension because there's always compromises. Yeah. And um, I'm just trying to find that perfect setting that has the right amount of low speed compression, the high speed compression, the bump absorption, the right rebound damping. So you're getting the right grip in the corners. It's, it's never ending, but, uh, so are I you ever designing like the products for your own bike that you would ride with? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I suppose was, that gives you a, like a really interesting, like advantage for developing these components as well. For sure. You're at the level where you're pushing these things harder than most 99% of other people. So you know what might need to go into it. And it was uh, it was something I was always doing, even though I wasn't a motorcycle engineer previously. Like I was designing parts and, and modifying my bike, which gave me a competitive advantage in that regards. Like I, I knew how to make things more durable. I knew how to like squeeze out performance where others probably weren't doing these things. Um, and then now that it is my profession, yeah, it, I have the the riding background where I can draw from that experience to make a better product. So I have to ask, has there been like your favorite memory or the best race or maybe the best location that you think back to that that was that was just <laughs> like the pinnacle? It's um, I, man, I just love riding. Like every time I get on a bike, I enjoy it. Like I can't think of a bad day. And uh, it's more of the memories of the the chase, the grind, going after these races. Um, I've I've traveled so far, and and typically, you know, when I was working my previous jobs, I was having to do this 
on my free time when most people are sitting at home on their couch relaxing. I'm out working in the garage, getting my bike ready, driving through the night to get to races, racing on the weekend. And I don't know, I just really think, yeah, it took a lot of time and effort and energy, but like, I, I love those memories. So where can people find out more about you or follow your next adventures? Um, I'm on Instagram. That's probably the best place to uh, follow along. I post there giving people race reports and updates on like, you know, events I have coming up. That's probably the best place. Um, you know, if you just want to generally find out about my past and stuff, just Google me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll link with your Instagram account in the show notes. So what's next for you, Nate? Um, next, um, professionally, I'm moving on to a new job at Fox. So moving more into the, the four wheeled world. Very cool. Yeah. I'll be uh, moving from Oregon to California and designing a uh, dampers for off-road vehicles. Are you going to pursue the ISDE this next year as well? Um, I'd love to. It's uh, it's in France, which uh, I think would be a great country to have a dirt bike race in. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. There's a. I don't know if the U.S. team will go this year. We got a. We got a lot going on with uh, COVID around the world. Yeah. So um, TBD. All right. Well, thank you, Nate. Love having you on and hearing all about your experiences. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is a blast. I'm glad to uh, introduce you guys a little bit to off-road racing. And hopefully, uh, you know, if you guys want to give it a try or have any questions, reach out, reach out to me. Always uh, glad to give people more info about the sport. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nate. We will see you next week. I have an awesome history story in the works for you. So take care and we'll see you then.